Hi everybody, my name is Zoe and today my friend Emily and I are going to explain the disparities between men and women in research and why it's absolutely necessary that we recognize them and make an effort to solve them. For centuries, the male body has represented the average human in all kinds of clinical trials and research efforts. Any everyday object that you use, including but not limited to your car, the shelves in your house, your cell phone, even personal protective equipment, were most likely tested to appease the average male body. As a result, female police officers are more likely to die from malfunctions of their safety gear, and any women involved in car crashes are 71% more likely to be injured. Today, we're focusing on the lack of medical research pertaining to the female body. Okay, so let's start with discussing the biological differences between males and females. Women are generally smaller as the average height for a male is 5.7 feet, while for women, it's 5.2 feet. As for sexual organs, women have ovaries and produce eggs, while males have testes and produce sperm. In addition, females typically have the XX chromosomes, and males typically have the XY chromosomes. Another significant difference between men and women is that women go through a menstrual cycle typically once a month. It's a hormonal process that can affect a woman's health in all aspects, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Furthermore, in terms of hormones, testosterone is the most significant hormone for a male sexual development and function. In females, estrogen helps develop and maintain both the reproductive system and female characteristics such as breasts. So why do these biological differences matter? Well, they matter because since women and men are so different, they both need to be equally represented in data so that any medicine or other medical advancement can be safe for both genders, not just one. So for the hundreds of years that women were not equally included or represented in medical trials, which is, by the way, still a problem, a lot of the drugs that were developed that we still take today were mostly just tested on male bodies. And when a doctor would prescribe dosages to biological males and females, if they weighed the same, they would receive the same dosage. But now we know that men and women have so many biological differences that make it impossible to give the same dosage to a biological male and a biological female who have the same weight. So as a result, Science Daily magazine tells us that in more than 90% of cases, women experienced worse side effects like nausea, headaches, depression, cognitive deficits, seizures, hallucinations, agitation, and even cardiac anomalies. So overall, women were found to experience adverse drug reactions twice as often as men. And while the inclusion of females in drug trials has increased in recent years, many of these newer studies still fail to analyze the data for sex differences. So that basically means researchers often don't enroll adequate numbers of women in trials, and even when they do, they don't analyze or report the data separately by sex. So part of the reason for this injustice is this term that we've created called women of childbearing potential. Um, and this basically pertains to any biological female technically capable of giving birth, regardless of their interest in having children or whether or not their partner is sterile, etc. So women of childbearing potential are not allowed to participate typically in the first three stages of clinical trials in order to safeguard their ability to give birth, like in case this drug that they're testing could af somehow affect their ability to give birth. So this kind of like a misogynistic way of telling women that their role in society remains to be childbearers, and it prevents us from being able to collect enough data regarding female bodies and how drugs can affect them. 
In regards to the current COVID-19 pandemic and the race for the vaccine, there has been a lack of information, especially in terms of how pregnant women are affected. But first, let's backtrack a little bit. The coronavirus was declared a pandemic in March of 2020 due to its speed and scale of transmission of disease. But before this, it started as an epidemic in Wuhan, China. However, the actual origin of COVID-19 remains unknown, but the initial cases have been linked with the South China seafood market in which snakes, birds, and other animals such as bats were sold. The coronavirus can be transmitted human-to-human human by respiratory droplets in close contact with diseased patients. In addition, more strands of the virus have popped up, some lasting longer than others due to natural selection. With the current vaccines available, preliminary research has suggested that not all the vaccines are so effective against all the variants. Furthermore, there has been very little research done pertaining to its effects on the female menstrual cycle and pregnant women. Caitlin Ott, a mother of two and about to be three, knew that the pregnancy raised the risk of getting severely ill if she caught the virus, but she was unaware of what would happen if she got the vaccine, as there was hardly any information on it. She eagerly jumped at the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial because, like she said, by excluding pregnant women, you leave us in the exact same spot we're in right now, the midst of a pandemic with no information, which is ultimately not helpful to patients. I mean, how can women feel safe about being vaccinated if scientists did not focus on how it would affect them differently? But thanks to her and many other brave pregnant women, there will now start to be more research on how pregnancy can affect the COVID vaccine. It's a shame, though, that this was not done sooner. Regardless, the vaccine is still heavily encouraged by the CDC for everyone to get, as there is far more benefits than there are risks. So over the past year and a half, the COVID-19 virus has kind of undergone the steps of evolution. So as Emily was saying, the first kind of strain was developed in Wuhan, China about a year and a half ago, and then... As more people began to be infected by the disease, more mutations would develop. And mutations that could adapt better to the environment, like survive in hotter temperatures if the region was hotter, or maybe even just transmit to other people easier, these mutations would often help COVID variants survive better. And then variants that didn't have this mutation would kind of die off because they couldn't be transmitted as well. So this is kind of an example of natural selection. And those who didn't die off were kind of the more fit mutations, the fit um, variants, I mean, that had this mutation that made them more fit. So whether this helped them adapt to the environment or just helped them spread more easily, um, these variants would just replicate and... Um, the, like the selective pressures, like colder temperatures could maybe kill off those variants that couldn't survive in colder temperatures. So this is how the COVID virus has kind of evolved over the past year and a half by creating different strains based on the environment that it's living in or how it can be transmitted among people. So the male body remains the default average human despite many efforts to include women in science, research, and medicine. This is only a small example of the lack of inclusion of females in all aspects of life, especially the professional world. The specific problem of the lack of data pertaining to the female body can simply be resolved through the further inclusion of women in clinical trials and further research efforts for illnesses that disproportionately affect women. So our biggest problem here is this traditional view of women as mothers or childbearers who are inferior to men, and this comes from hundreds of years ago when men would go do physical labor to support their families while women would stay home and watch their children because they were smaller and more fragile. But in reality, society is changing and women are educated and strong 
and can work to support themselves and their families. And this development should be followed by a development in the medical field, because women have the right to be involved in clinical trials and to know how drugs will affect them disproportionately so that they can maintain good health. So this problem will obviously take several years to solve, but the first step in any plan of action should be to lobby for legal quotas that ensure sufficient amounts of women will be included in any medical trial for a drug that could affect them. We could also inspire scientists to study men and women separately to see how drugs will affect them disproportionately. Overall, we just need to ensure that scientists are accounting for the fact that drugs will affect men and women differently because of the several biological differences that separate them, and that they account for that in their medical trials. So it feels like as students or young people, there's not much that we can do about this problem. We can always, you know, protest or sign petitions, but the biggest tool that we have is social media. You know, as young people, we're so knowledgeable about how to use it and how to articulate our grievances, whether we're using Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. If we're spreading this by word of mouth and by posts, we can get more people to care about this and eventually maybe even start a revolution, include more women in medical trials, help us know more about our bodies so that we can know how to take care of them and recognize that we are different from men and don't need to be treated differently, but maybe need to be researched differently. All in all, this corresponds to the gratitude value of being committed to doing justice as we are trying to figure out ways to close the gender gap so that women can be more represented in healthcare data. Women are just as important as men and therefore should feel just as safe when taking new medicines or undergoing clinical trials as there will be more data of them set in place. This also relates to the gratitude value of being open to growth because in order to fight this injustice, people are going to need to be open to growth as they need to be able to realize that there are disparities between men and women in research. Without them being able to come to terms with this reality, then we cannot move forward and therefore scientists, research and everyone else for that matter, need to be able to realize why the inequality in data is a problem in today's society. So thank you for listening to Zoe and Emily's first podcast. Uh, We enjoyed making this. I hope you enjoyed listening to it and that you learned something and hopefully you feel inspired to fight for gender equality in healthcare, in the medical field, and clinical trials. And yeah, thank you for listening and see you next time.